So this morning, I have the great privilege of uh, opening up God's word to us. If you've got a Bible, I would love you to turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Many of you won't have uh, seen this chapter before, read it before. This is one of the uh, four servant songs. We looked at the first of these servant songs last week, and this is the second. And these are um, wonderful little prophetic uh, songs that speak about the person of Christ and his ministry that are written hundreds of years before uh, Christ's incarnation and his ministry on this earth. And each one of them is, is really provides a unique insight into the person of Christ and into his, uh, his ministry then and, and also his ministry in our lives today. So uh, if, you've got the, if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to keep it open as I read to you Isaiah 49, uh, 1 to 13, and then uh, keep, it with, keep it open as we uh, work through the passage. So this is the servant speaking himself. This is Jesus speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, to bring the nation of Israel back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favour, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall neither they shall not hunger nor thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by spring by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. I wonder what your first reaction is as you heard that uh, great proclamation from the servant. There's lots there, but really the essence, I think, of what uh, this song is telling us is this is the announcement of a prophet 
It has all the hallmarks of a kind of prophetic calling. Notice in verse one, he says, the Lord called me from from the womb. Well, you know, many times prophets introduce themselves with a kind of reminder that they have a kind of sense of prophetic destiny that stretches back to when they were being uh, formed in their mother's womb. Uh, Jeremiah says, before I formed you in the womb, this is God's speak, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. So this prophet carries something of a sense of, of, of destiny. Of course, his ministry relates to what he says, which is as a prophet is one who speaks the words of God to the people. In verse two, he said, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. He describes himself as the servant, the Lord's servant in verse three and verse five. In verse five, we hear his call to to turn back the nation of Israel to God. It's a very familiar uh, call to the prophets throughout the history of the people of Israel. God sends prophets to bring them back to him. But this prophet is distinctive. Really, the most distinctive thing about him is that he has a distinctive global call. In verse six, it says the calling to Israel is too small. Said it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, just think for a moment, it's an almost impossible calling. How could one man have a ministry, have a prophetic ministry such that every nation will hear that will, will, will um, have the salvation of the Lord announced to them? I think it's no mere man who can achieve this calling. In fact, in verse 10 to 12, it describes a kind of global migration. In verse 12, it talks about... Um, People who come from afar, from the east, uh, from, the, from uh, those from the north, from the west and uh, from Syene, which uh, what commentators suggest might be a town in southern Egypt, saying people coming from every point in the compass, the east, the north, the west, the south, people will come to Zion. Of course, it's speaking of the way that because of this servant, because of his words, the nations will turn to the living God. This is, of course, we know from the New Testament that Christ is no mere prophet. He is the very word of God himself. But in all of this instruction, I think there's one verse that really stands out, and that's the first verse. His instruction to us. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. You have to hear the sense of divine authority in what Jesus is saying here. This is no prophet saying, these are the words of the Lord. No, this is him saying, listen to me. The only person who speaks like that in the book of Isaiah is God himself. Jesus is coming with a sense of divine authority. You've got to hear the urgency and authority in what he's saying. You can imagine Christ on some kind of mountaintop overlooking the world, shouting to the world, listen to me. And as he does that, his, his words reverberate around the coastlands. They're being heard in the Florida beaches, in the Cornish coasts, in the Indonesian islands. His words are reverberating around a global audience. No one is excluded from Christ's demand in these verses. And so I want to ask you the question this morning. I want to really focus on one question, which is, are you listening to Christ? Now, if you're not a Christian, you say, why, why would I listen to him at all? I want to show you that you have every reason to listen to him. I think it speaks to us as Christians in a number of ways. One of which is just simply that many of us are experiencing a weariness and apathy, all sorts of reasons, obviously, for the kind of lockdown experience that we're in. And I think that has often um, then comes through into our spiritual lives. And as a result, we're not um, 
We're kind of weary. We're not really uh, pursuing the voice of God. We're not really uh, in a kind of eager posture to hear what Christ is saying to us. I want to, as we hear Christ's demand, listen to me, I want us to reshape our posture this morning. To, hear, to, be, to be eager to hear what he's saying, to hear his words of comfort to us and to make his voice preeminent in our lives. Of course, I think this also speaks to the way we approach the Bible and in the busyness of this season. I imagine some of us have, have found it harder to keep up a regular discipline of listening to Christ's word in the Bible. And yet I think others are just feeling a kind of sense of apathy about the Bible. Maybe you're thinking, is this really going to change me? Have uh, forgotten the power of these words? We live in an information age where we, we can go to all sorts of other places to receive comfort for our souls. I think it's more important in this time, but it's always important to be making Christ's word uh, preeminent, to be hearing and listening to his voice. So this morning, I want to really give you three points. I want to say why you should listen to his voice, to remember who he is and what it means to listen to him, to allow his word to shape you deeply and to let him speak words of comfort to you. So first of all, and why you should listen to him. I think when we see the servant's authority and the power of his words in this passage, we, we kind of come to an, the inescapable conclusion that we have no option but to listen to him. See, Isaiah 49 is all about an expression of Christ's authority. You see that in the first verse when he says, listen to me. But you see it all the way through. You see it in verse 7. You see something of a paradox in verse 7. He's described as one who will be despised and abhorred, one who will um, generate a kind of collective feeling of revulsion, of disgust. Of course, I think, you know, it's similar to the way that someone might react to a kind of homeless person, almost like you don't even want to look at them. And of course, I think this is probably most clearly speaking about the reaction to Christ on the cross. As some would have observed his body and seen the, the, uh, the lacerations, the bruises, the, the, way, the battered, naked, humiliated body on the cross. And there'll be some who wanted to turn their face away from him. Who would have, di- who would have looked down their noses on him. And yet, verse 7 is describing a paradox. Because it's that very same uh, servant on the cross who, who, we, who one day says kings and princes will see and arise. You remember, I, don't, I haven't been to that many formal gatherings where this kind of thing goes on, but you might be at a very formal gathering where uh, when the guest of honour comes in, uh, everyone stands up. It's a moment of recognising their importance and their authority. And it's saying that one day the kings will see and arise before Christ as a recognition of his authority. And of course, they will then, it talks about them prostrating themselves, of kneeling before him. Of course, there's a great danger, and I'm particularly speaking to you if you're not a Christian, maybe you spent time in lockdown watching these services, that you see uh, Christ in the Gospels and you see uh, an influential teacher, uh, maybe a compassionate, uh, you see his compassion, but you think, what is the big deal? Um, The danger is that you fail to see Christ's true majesty. And there's a sense to which in the Gospels that Christ's majesty is, is veiled. We don't actually see his full majesty. I love uh, in Revelation uh, chapter one, where we see the same picture of the, of the one whose sword is coming from his mouth. And we get a moment where we see Christ's majesty. He says, then I turned to see the voice. This is John speaking. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. 
clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What's John's response when he hears that? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's so struck down by the by the image, by the, 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 the way he's caught sight of Christ's majesty and authority. So when, we, so when you really see who Christ is, you have no other option but to bow before him. And I think this gets to the heart of what it means to listen to Christ. The very beginning of what it means to listen is to obey him. You can't claim to be listening to Christ and not walking in obedience to him. It's like Christ doesn't want interested onlookers, people just kind of looking on saying, maybe it's interesting. No, he wants disciples. He wants people who have made him their master, their Lord. See, belief isn't enough. Even the demons recognize and believe who Christ is. To listen to Christ is to make him your master. I think it's very often in Christian circles today that people are more likely to treat to treat Christ like a life coach than a master. Then sense that you might kind of adopt a kind of spiritual consumerism that we see all around the world where people pick different things of different worldviews that they like and kind of ultimately they're the master of their own spiritual lives. You think about the way you might say, I like Christ's love, I like his humility, but you jettison his sexual ethics or his, uh, the sense of the reminder of his judgment or his uh, call to be sacrificially generous with your money. The thing is, if, 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 if you are deciding which bits to obey and which bits not, actually Christ is no Lord at all. Actually, you are the God of your life. You are the final arbiter. Actually, but I think it's more subtle than we realise uh, subconsciously, as Christians, we often dial down the commands of Christ. We kind of evade the, the full uh, strength of his commands. Say, well, Christ can't actually be calling me to love my neighbour. I mean, it, we kind of come up with a kind of spiritual interpretation. Maybe he means kind of a, a vague sense of positivity towards outsiders. Maybe you think, well, hasn't he been to London? I mean, no one really talks to their neighbours, so he can't be calling me to love my neighbour as myself. Can't be calling me to give uh, generously to those in need when he knows that I'm uh, saving up to put down a deposit. I'll give later on in life. Or maybe we kind of spiritualize a self-justification uh, for a reason why Christ's words don't apply to me. Um, maybe we kind of say self-protection. God, Christ can't be calling me to love that difficult person. when he, Doesn't he know I'm already loving this difficult person? He can't be calling me to also uh, to love that person. Or maybe uh, forgiveness. We, we, forgiveness can sometimes feel very difficult. I'm not denying the... Um, remember, forgiveness doesn't mean denying the wrongdoing that someone's done to us or even the pain that someone's caused us. But sometimes we say, if Christ really understood the depth of the pain, or, um, then, then, then he wouldn't be calling me to forgive this person. But actually, we see in the gospel, we see that Christ is calling us to a clear, uh, ongoing, repeated forgiveness. Uh, remember, Peter asked him, how many times should I forgive? Maybe seven times. Christ says 77 times, infinite times. Actually, many of us need to recognize that to really walk in obedience to Christ means walking in a posture of obedience, a willingness to ask God to search your life. I love uh, how he puts it in Psalm 
The psalmist puts in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my hearts. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What it's saying is we start with the assumption that our hearts are deceitful that we uh, don't really know the full nature of all the uh, desires that are in our hearts, that many of which don't conform to Christ. And so actually saying, challenge me, change me, show me where in my heart uh, I'm not, I'm subtly trying to avoid the, uh, the weight of what you're calling me to. There's a kind of sense of unreservedness in what it means to obey Christ. Say, wherever and wherever, whenever you're calling me, I'll go there. Like the way a, a soldier responds to a commanding officer. Or a servant responds to a master. It's a posture of submission. So we see his authority. But this passage also speaks of the power of Christ's words. This is the other great reason, I think, why uh, this passage is giving us for listening to Christ. See, in verse 9, he says, the, um, he will uh, liberate those in captivity. He says, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. Notice he says, saying to the prisoners, come out. It's Christ's words that will bring freedom. Of course, this speaks to that great contemporary myth of freedom. The idea that freedom is simply the the ability to be able to indulge in whatever you want to do and to have as little constraint as possible. And what what it's saying is what that misses is actually when you're living that kind of life, like you're actually not as free as you think you are. You're actually controlled by your desires, by your uh, desire, passions and desires and uh, all sorts of different uh, pleasures. Think about uh, the way uh, lust can control a person. Maybe it might control a person even to the point where they might, um, you know, maybe they think, oh, I can, t- I can control this, but actually it ends up controlling them and they end up committing adultery, of ruining their marriage, of wrecking their family. They might have thought they were free, but actually it's quite the opposite. Or think about the way uh, you've seen the desire for success. Ambition can control a man. How it becomes the dominating desire in their life. How they're willing to sacrifice friendships and family and uh, quality of life to be as successful as possible. And they can't stop. And they're going further and further and trying to achieve more and more. Until the day when they're fired or they retire or whatever. Or work ends and suddenly their life feels meaningless. They realise that they've been worshipping those desires. And those desires, rather than just being something they um, indulge in for happiness, actually have become to control them. Christ comes to liberate the idol worshipper, the one who's controlled by their desires. To recognise that these false idols will never bring us satisfaction. See, with Christ's words come the promise of his eternal love. The, the love that I think really many of us are seeking when we, to, we try to search, search after all sorts of things, whether it be drugs, alcohol, sex, relationships. Actually, Christ's words come with the, the real thing, so to speak, saying, don't go after these counterfeits. I have the love that you've been looking for, the very uh, reason for your existence, to know me and enjoy me. This means that Christ brings a new freedom. Christ brings a, a freedom from the controlling power of sin. You're no longer a slave to sin if you're a Christian. It's like Christ gives the, the former prisoner their freedom to live, live for God, to enjoy him and to live according to his intended design. I think we've forgotten the life-changing power of Christ's words. There was a, a, a classical scholar, like a, a, a Greek scholar uh, called Emile uh, Riou, and he was a, a, wasn't a believer And he was asked by one of the big publishers, by Penguin, to translate the Gospels. 
And uh, he was asked then later on in a BBC interview, uh, he was being interviewed with another guy who was a Christian who'd also translated the Gospels. And the guy who was a Christian said, did you notice a kind of power in what you're reading? Did you see uh, that it was a living document? And this is what this guy said. I got the deepest feeling that I possibly could have expected. I absolutely saw this was a living document. It changed me. My work changed me. And I came to the conclusion that these works bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. And they are the Magna Carta of the human spirit. So now I became a Christian. And it's interesting he talks about that word Magna Carta of the human spirit. Think about what the Magna Carta was. It was a declaration of the rights of the people of England. It was a declaration of freedom. It means that when you go to read the Bible, you're not going in some kind of um, lifeless, boring ritual. No, you're going to come and read about the treasures that you've received in Christ. Come and to meditate on the freedom in Christ that you've received. This, is, this should be cause for great joy. Actually recognise that these are the very words that will transform your life. These are the very words that have transformed nations. Think back to verse 10 to 12 when he talks about this kind of global pilgrimage of people from every point in the compass uh, coming to worship the living God. It's, 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 this is how Christ uh, has brought about that transformation. It's, the, it's his words going to the ends of the earth, being preached, and people of every nation turning to the living God. Think about how, uh, think about how his words have transformed nations about the Reformation in the 1500s, where the people of Europe were basically in a kind of lifeless religious obligation, but they really had no idea what they were, they were engaging in, and it felt very uh, alien to them. I'm not sure really they had many would have had a, a living relationship with God. Why? Because they'd never really read the Bible. And of course, uh, men and women laid down their lives such that, they, that, that the Bible could be in the language of the people, who, uh, the language of the common people. And it's like Christ's words were unveiled to a continent. And as those words were unveiled, the continent was transformed. It's why William Tyndale was willing to give his life to translate the Bible. He lost his life under the authority of Henry VIII for doing a seditious act of translating the Bible. But why was he willing to do that? Because he had the conviction that the nation would be transformed when, it was in the, ha- when the Bible was in the hands of the common people, in the hands of the plowboy in his language. I think, well, my question is, do we realise the power of the words in the Bible that we read? Do we realise that these are the words that have transformed nations, transformed individual lives, but have transformed whole continents and have gone around the world? This is the means of how Christ's salvation would reach the ends of the earth. It means that we need to savour Christ's words as we read them, to recognise the significance. Like, do you know how the, uh, the, the kind of... A priest might open the scroll with a sense of reverence, of recognising the privilege of reading these words. Recognise that these are the very words of God. They're living and active. Not dead words, but words that bring life. Words that bring freedom, inner transformation. So really what I want to underscore is remember who is speaking to you. Remember the authority and power of his words. But what does it mean then to listen to him? What does it mean to listen to Christ? The first way I want to suggest to you is it means to allow Christ's words to change you deeply. Listening to Christ means allowing his words to penetrate your inner being and to transform you. What you have to see in this passage is the sharpness of Christ's words. 
in, in verse two, and he says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. It's reminiscent of Hebrews four, when he says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Of course, you see this even in the way that Christ describes himself like an arrow that's polished up prepared so it won't deviate but go sharply into its intended target why sharpness well because christ's words are intended to go deep into the heart think about that language of dividing soul and spirit going right into your inner being to listen to request to listen to christ is no kind of superficial uh, behavior modification no to listen to christ is to allow his words to transform you from the inside to change your emotions, your desires, your will, to, sh- to reshape your identity. And what I think this is first challenging then is the danger of a kind of superficial relationship with God's word. It kind of ch- changes the way you read your Bible. Some of us read the Bible in the morning almost in a way that kind of some people might scroll through Instagram looking for a kind of inspirational uh, phrase that will just kind of give them a bit of an encouragement to go ahead in the day. Of course, it's absolutely true that the Bible is full of encouragement. But if you look at it... If Uh, like that you're kind of missing something or maybe what you might read the bible and kind of intellectually just wanting to understand more about uh, god's plan through the ages and what god's done again knowledge is a really important goal but it's not the whole picture there's a danger of reading your bible without engaging your whole being Uh, calvin said god's law the bible is a dead letter which kills when it sounds in our ears without touching our hearts when it sounds in our ears without touching our hearts How easy it is to kind of read the Bible superficially without any intention that will really shape your life, your emotions, your desires, your inner convictions. And to do that is useless. It becomes like dead knowledge. Actually, we need to approach Christ's words with a willingness, a posture of willing to be transformed by it. I think this means all sorts of things, but let me give you a couple. One is that it means we have to be willing to allow Christ's words to shape our emotions. I think many of us will testify that during this time we've experienced all sorts of different emotions. Uh, Loneliness, a sense of loss, maybe a sense of frustration with ourselves as we've got out of good habits or a sense of apathy. And it's, it's easy to be affected and perhaps even controlled by these emotions. Of course, when we're in contact with less people, I think what's going on in your head has more of an impact on, on how you live. Really, but that's a very, I think... What you need to see is Christ's desire to dwell in our hearts, to take possession of our hearts, of our emotional life, to reign and have authority over everything that's going on in our heads and our hearts. This isn't a denial of our emotions or pretending that we're fine when we're not, but the ongoing work of seeking to bring your emotional life under the authority of Christ. This is like a daily ongoing work of being shaped. And what it's saying is the greatest tool or weapon that you have in the battle of your mind as you deal with all sorts of emotions and desires that you know don't reflect who you are in Christ. The greatest weapon you have to fight unwanted emotions and desires is God's word, Christ's word, his sword that will reach into your heart. Think about uh, many of us may experience a kind of sense of despair or hopelessness right now. And at that moment, as you start to feel hopeless about the world and your own life, maybe it's that moment that you have to say to yourself, no, Christ is still sovereign. It's Ephesians 2.10. He's got good work. He's prepared good works in advance for me to do. Even if my life feels hopeless, I'm not sure what I'm meant to do. Christ has prepared good works for me even now. 
Or think about, many of you might experience some kind of anxiety or worry about your finances. And you maybe start kind of going through your, the numbers in your head and thinking, how long can I survive if I lost my job? All sorts of things. It's at that moment when you're doing that that you need to remind yourself of the reality, of the truth, that you have a good father who cares for you, who feeds the birds, who clothes the grass and doesn't want you to worry about all those things. Instead, he wants you to seek first the kingdom. In the battle for the mind, the best weapon is not a positive mental attitude or meaningless platitudes that you might find on social media, but God's word, which is the, the very basis by which your mind is transformed by, by uh, say Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as you're able to battle anxiety, as you're able to uh, fight any sense of apathy in your heart, actually you find a new freedom to be able to be interested in others, to be able to serve and love the people around you. So I think it means that Christ wants to come and shape our emotional life by his word. But it also means welcoming Christ's word as the antidote to sin. You've got to see Christ's sharp word here, like the, the surgeon's knife come to cut out the cancerous growth in our hearts or the, the gardener's pruning shears uh, cutting out all the weeds or digging out the weeds in the garden of our soul. As you read God's word, what it's saying is you are confronted by the reality of your own heart. The God who knows you and will not hold back in challenging you and, and, sh- and showing you the state of your heart. I found this this week as I was uh, reading through Hebrews. I just came across the verse that said, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it was like a dagger to my heart. There are times during the last uh, 18 weeks that I've uh, kind of nurtured a desire for a a, a flat with a garden. If you're in a flat without a garden, you might have felt that at times as well. And and maybe even kind of nurtured that by going on right move, even though we have no plans or or, um, any kind of plans to move anytime soon. But at that moment when I read those verses, I realised, be content with what you have. It's a challenge from the Lord to, to put down any kind of longing for something else and to enjoy the gifts that he's given us. Think about what he said in Hebrews 4. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word knows us. It knows us because as a realistic picture of humanity. It knows the depravity of our hearts, but it also knows us because it's a living and active document and because God's spirit uses it to speak directly to our hearts. It's easy to want to avoid this. In fact, I think it's partly the reason behind why some of us are reluctant to read the Bible. It's not like opening up a novel and just being entertained. You recognise that the surgeon's knife is at times going to feel painful. But of course, the danger of not coming under the surgeon's knife is a lot worse. We're like the patient who, who puts off going to the doctor because of the hassle or the pain involved in the treatment, all the while actually forgetting that the disease itself is more dangerous to let that flourish than than to experience the momentary pain of the surgeon's uh, knife, so to speak. There's an urgency here that we risk the garden being overgrown with weeds. What it says is if you allow sin to, to fester in your life, if you keep on going down that path, it might pretend to be an innocent little thing, but actually it will end up uh, taking over the garden. Unless you cut it off, it will spread and spread, wanting more and more. We've forgotten the nature of our hearts, that we have all sorts of different uh, sinful desires coming out of our hearts, and we, our hearts are deceitful. We're regularly deceiving ourselves about the nature of sin. We need to be putting ourselves under the surgeon's knife, reading and engaging with Christ's word, allowing him to speak and to and challenge the sin that lurks within. And all of this, if you're really 
seeking to be transformed deeply by it. What it means is that Christ's word must be preeminent. The sword is intended to to sink down into your inner being and to bring comprehensive transformation, to reshape your mind, your emotions, your worldview, your identity, your desires. To do that, Christ's voice must be preeminent in your life, must be the dominating reality, the thing that shapes who you are more than anything else. Doesn't mean that you don't consume social media or or news online, I'm sure, or entertainment, but you don't live there. You don't allow the world's media to fundamentally shape your identity or your emotions or your vision of life. Of course, we're all being shaped by what we read online and what we consume. What it says is you need to filter it through a biblical worldview, a biblical lens. I think about how the moment many of us, as we watch a second wave around the world, uh, I imagine a dominating emotion that we see is a kind of sense of compassion, but also of despair, as people are thinking, what's this going to mean for, for, for the world? And it's easy to be swept up in that. It's easy to experience those emotions as you, as you uh, go online. But as we read God's word, we're reminded of his power and authority, his sovereignty, that, that it's right that we experience compassion, but that compassion is not, um, is not full of despair. Actually, it's a compassion that holds tightly to the sovereignty of God and to know that he is in control. Ultimately, we are, many of us are shaped, all of us are shaped by the soup that we swim in. And what it's saying is that the soup you swim in, the, the influence in your lives must have a distinctly biblical flavour. But of course, you have to ask the question, will you allow Christ to come in and shape you at the very core of who you are? Will you be, are you willing to surrender your emotions and desires under his word? But I, think, I want to bring you to my final point then, which is it, listening to him, it means shaping you internally, but it also means hearing his words of comfort. Listening to Christ means recognising that he alone has the words of comfort that we're longing for. You have to see this picture that is being painted in Isaiah 49. It's not a static picture of of Christ's voice reverberating around the world. You also have to see that that pilgrimage, that return of people from every uh, point on the compass, from every nation uh, returning to God. It's a picture of them returning from exile. Of course, they're not like the people of Israel actually in exile in Babylon, but it's effectively like they've been in exile because, of course, they don't know the living God. What he's saying is that Christ is both initiating that global stampede. Uh, Obviously, it's a a, a picture. Christ is bringing about the change of hearts, but also he's leading people. He's he's shepherding them on that on their way back to Zion. Hear what he says in verse nine, uh, verse nine and ten. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall, neither, they shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. You have this picture of Christ who is leading his people, who is shepherding them on their way to the eternal city, to Zion. Of course, this is a picture of the Christian life. We've been set free. We're no longer prisoners. We've been brought out of darkness. But we're on the way to the day when Christ will return and dwell with his people. We will see him face to face. And we're on that pilgrimage. We're like the people of Israel between having come out of Egypt to being rescued from slavery. But we're on the way to the promised land and we're walking through the desert. And just like the people of Israel were being led by God 
through Moses as the, as, the, as the great prophet led them. So we too are being led by Christ through the wilderness on the pilgrimage to the eternal city. And in this um, kind of, I think there's, there's some parallels to how we feel right now. We feel like we're on a kind of long, weary journey. We're saying, when will we get to the, get to the end of this lockdown, etc.? And kind of many of us experiencing kind of slow erosion of joy and frustration. It's essential to, to remember that Christ is leading us on this pilgrimage, that he has the words of comfort that we need. See, there's a whole series of false comforts that you might turn to, to calm our anxious souls or to speak to our fears. Different ways of dealing with the crisis, the emotions that come with it. I think about how some might religiously or or regularly be checking the news as a kind of uh, maybe to distract yourself or just as a kind of socially worthy goal of knowing what's going on in the world, of staying up to date. Of course, the reality is that we're loading up on ourselves um, a bunch of of problems of, of of the world that are really above our pay grade. Are beyond, are beyond us. Or we, some of us turn to a kind of escapism, and that can manifest itself in all sorts of things. Netflix, holidays, reading a good book. Of course, these are no bad things, and rest is part of our design. It's essential to our flourishing. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't rest or enjoy entertainment or holidays and all sorts of things. But, that, but sometimes we can kind of drift into a kind of escapism. Um, of course, it's when we try to escape from the anxiety that we're feeling by distracting our souls, actually, you don't really deal with the fundamental problem. Some of us can turn to a kind of hyperactivity of, of working too hard, of over-communicating, of trying to solve everyone's problems around us. Of course, the reality is you need to know that you, you can't control the world, you can't control the future, and no amount of work will change that. Of course, this kind of reality of having to live with uncertainty is part of the human condition. It's why Ernst Becker said, to live fully is to live with an awareness of the rumble of terror that underlies everything we live the reality of uncertainty the possibility of terror in the future and so the question for every human being in every age is who will provide us lasting comfort into that uncertainty what this passage is saying is that christ's voice uniquely comforts us christ's words uniquely comfort us i think he does this in a few ways First of all, he changes our context. He reminds us that wherever we are in the world, whatever's going on, we are on that pilgrimage to the eternal city, that destination of seeing Christ face to face, of Christ dwelling fully on this earth. It means that you might, you might go through ups and downs, you might go through real terrible tragedies, but in, in one sense, these are, just ups and, uh, these are just bumps in the road, so to speak, to, on the way to the final destination. It's, it means that your underlying Um, priorities haven't changed your circumstances might change you the the journey may look very different you may be going through a particularly undulating part of the journey but you still have a purpose that's unshakable think about what it says in in what paul says in one corinthians Uh, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all for the glory of god whatever circumstances you're in right now that is your primary purpose to do it all for the glory of god If you're grieving for loss, you can grieve to the glory of God. If you're unemployed or furloughing, you can do it to the glory of God. You can face the loss of income with a humble trust. You can seek out productive ways of using your time for the glory of God, of of serving those around you. You can look for work in an intentional but non-anxious way without letting anxiety dominate over your heart. If you're suffering, you can do it to the glory of God. That might involve lament, that might involve mourning. It's not denying the reality of tragedy, but we mourn as one who has hope. We can glorify God in our suffering. 
Our circumstances may change, we may feel uncertain, but our fundamental purpose hasn't changed. It also says you know how the story ends. You know, you think about when you're watching a TV show and you know, I was I watching one last night, where you know that the character ha, um, it survives to the next series. So they're going through a moment of jeopardy and you think, are they going to die? Are they going to make it? But actually you know that there's a next series and they're in it. So therefore you, the, the jeopardy is, is somewhat diminished. I don't know about you, but I can kind of calm myself. No, they're not going to die because they, they survive. And I, I think there's, there's that kind of sense I want us to hold on onto in the Christian life. We know how the story ends. We might be part of the coronavirus generation with job prospects affected, feeling less well off than the previous generation, all sorts of things. But that doesn't change the end of the story. You might make a total hash of things. You might make mistakes. You might fall into a pit of despair. You might experience difficult circumstances, but that doesn't change your eventual destination. I think this is a great antidote to uh, sometimes that condemnation. Maybe you feel like you've made a hash of things over the last few weeks. Actually, you, you need to know that one day you're going to be reigning with Christ that your future eternal destiny is assured with him. And that means that it may feel hard now, but that, that destination hasn't changed. The very worst thing you could do is shrink back from Christ in your trials because, it's the, because that is the only thing that might put the end of the story in jeopardy. You have to hear that as we're on this pilgrimage, Christ is sustaining and feeding us. See, God's promise is not that we won't go through trials. Hebrews talks about the, the way that God disciplines those he loves. We live in a fallen world where sin is in the garden, where we live with the reality of death and disease. But he does promise to comfort his people, to have compassion on the afflicted. He does promise to comfort you. He promises to feed those in need. In verse 9, he talks about um, this, this food on the all bare heights shall be their pasture. Saying, you know, imagine being at the very top of a mountain. Often there isn't much pasture. There isn't much grassland on the, on the, on the, on the top of the mountain. He's saying, no, there will always be pasture for God's people. There will always be, he will always feed them. Now, I think he's not really talking about food that perishes here. No, he's talking about the words of eternal life that will sustain you and feed you through any kind of trial, any kind of um, suffering. He describes the springs of living water in verse 10. He said, Christ will refresh you with the presence of his spirit poured out on you. He will sustain you. The great danger is that you become like the Israelites in the desert who are complaining, saying, why, where's God? Why has he given us this manna? Why, you know, why are we eating this stuff again? And yet this is God's gift for them for their survival. Let's not turn away from God's word and say, I can't believe that this is what he's given me. No, receive this and say, this is God's gift to sustain you through the trial. It's the very thing that you need means for those of you who are going through suffering, you need to change the paradigm. Focus on survival. You need to ask the question, what is God giving me to sustain me, to comfort me, to feed me, just as I take the next steps? What is God giving me to just walk through and to, to put one foot in front of the other? Um, a while ago, we um, saw a friend of ours go through tremendous suffering. And uh, a lot of that suffering was beyond their control. And in that suffering, what I noticed was interesting is they weren't asking what will bring an end to that suffering because that was out of their hands. Instead, they asked the question, what is God providing me today that will enable me to step forward to tomorrow? What is God giving me that will sustain me? This is not a kind of uh, passive thing. This is, they would search the scriptures saying, what, is God, what of God's truth will sustain me and comfort me in, in today? Find the gold that will sustain you. It means that when we're encouraging our brothers and sisters, when we're talking to those who are struggling, our job is primarily not to try and solve people's problems or to give them the, the vain hope that this will be over tomorrow, but instead to ask, what is Christ's word for that brother or sister? 
What is he saying to that situation? What truth does he have that will comfort them? We have to hear that to listen to Christ means to, be, to trust that his words are the greatest comfort to our souls, that he wants to comfort us through trials. So I want to close then really by leaving you with a, with a couple of thoughts. I want to close that we as the people of God hear this great servant, this great prophet to the nations, hear his words reverberating around the world. And our first response should be to rejoice. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Rejoice that the servant's word has gone out, that has brought salvation to the ends of the earth, that is transforming the world. We rejoice and worship Christ for the power of his word that is transforming nations, transforming lives, and continuing to do so today. But it also means we surrender to his voice. We, we hear his, his command, his demand, listen to me. And we submit to him. We, we kneel before him. We come under his sword. And we submit to him as master. We, we see his great demand. If you're not a Christian, that means surrendering your whole life to him, saying you are the Lord of all. And if you'd like to talk to us more, we'd love to chat to you to help you to do that. But if you're a Christian, it means seeing the authority of his word, asking that again that he would be the preeminent voice in your life. But it also means hearing the unique words of comfort to recognize that you have a good shepherd who is leading you through this time to surrender yourself to him to bring your anxieties to him to bring your despair to bring any sense of weariness to him maybe to repent where we've not been seeking his words of comfort maybe you've been pursuing false comforts to turn to him and say where else will we go for you have the words of eternal life And to trust his promises, to trust his promise that he will comfort the afflicted, that he will sustain you and feed you each day, that he will refresh you with his Holy Spirit. What a saviour we serve. Praise God. Let me pray and give thanks to that. And then um, the guy's going to lead us in response. Lord, we just want to thank you that your word has gone out. We want to thank you that your word reverberates around the coastlands today, that your word is going out, that it's being preached throughout the nations. Lord, we thank you that your salvation hope has come into our lives. We thank you that you've opened our eyes. Thank you that you have now are taking us on this great pilgrimage to the eternal city. Lord, help us to come and hear your voice. Help us to, to uh, be like uh, sheep to the good shepherd to come and trust you, to come and follow you, to come and surrender to your word, uh, to come and walk in obedience to you. Lord, we thank you that you alone have the great words of comfort that will sustain us. Lord, we want to come and receive your word today. We want to come and receive your words of comfort that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. But we also want to pray that you would help us to each day in the coming weeks to be sustained by your word, to be people who are just drinking deeply each day from your, from your fountain. Coming to receive your Holy Spirit. Coming to receive your life-giving word. Coming to remember all the promises that you have for us. Coming to remember everything you've done for us. Coming to remember that as far as the east is from the west, so far you've removed our transgressions from us. Lord, we thank you for that grace. We thank you for your, your saving power that you will sustain us to the end till we see you face to face. Lord, help us to be faithful until then. Sustain us, feed us, lead us. We want to be your faithful servants, Lord. Thank you, Lord.
Come now, Lord, speak to us. Come now by your spirit and lead us. We praise you and worship you. And we celebrate that you will hold us fast. You will lead us home. Amen.